Since it's uh, football season, I thought I'd start today with a, a football-related story about um, Bobby Bowden, one of the most successful and well-known football coaches who retired from Florida State a few years back. Tennessee Titans center Kevin Long played for Bobby Bowden, and he said that uh, Bowden would uh, often tell stories or parables about life to inspire his team. Uh, one of his favorites uh, recounts uh, involves a time when Bowden was playing college baseball. He said uh, Bowden talked about himself so that he wasn't the fastest guy, but he could make contact, and uh, but he didn't have a lot of power either. Uh, so uh, he talked about one day when he was playing baseball, and he, he got a hold of the ball, and it hit it down the right field line into the corner, and he took off running, he rounded first base, and he made it to second, made it to third, made it home with an inside-the-park home run. His teammates came out, they were excited for him, he was excited, they were uh, slapping him on the back and, and giving him a high five, and then all of a sudden the pitcher picked up the ball, threw to first base, and they called him out. He had forgotten to touch first base, he had missed first base. After telling the story, Bowden would then say this to his players, if you don't take care of first base, it doesn't matter what you do. And they would add to it. If you don't honor the Lord first, it doesn't matter what else you do. And when kids turn uh, maybe two or three, they begin to explore the world around them a lot, don't they? They can, they can verbalize, they begin to look at things, and, and they begin to ask questions. And one of the questions that you hear most often from a kid when they're that age is what? Why? You know, why? Why do I have to wash my hands after I go to the bathroom? Why can't I eat as much chocolate as I want? Why do I have to eat my vegetables? Why, why, why? And they do that, of course, because they're trying to understand the world around them. They're trying to make sense of things. And so they ask why. It's helpful for them as they kind of grow and mature and they become older. Well, well, spiritually speaking, we need to do the same thing in our relationship with God. We need to ask why. Why does the Lord call us to do certain things? Why does the scripture tell us to do certain things? Why do we do certain things as a church? And so this morning, we're going to start a new sermon series entitled, Why? And we'll be looking at, over the next uh, several weeks, we'll be looking at at four or five different topics, kind of central core um, um, purposes of the church. And today we're going to start with, with first base, the most important thing. If you don't do it, nothing else really matters that much, and that is the area of worship. The primacy and importance of worship in the life of a believer and, and worship in the life of the church. In my earliest memories of worship were as a, a young child attending a small country church uh, north of here, about 75 miles or so. Um, our worship attendance was usually pretty low, 15 or 20 people. My mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, and then a bunch of relatives who were 70, 80, 90 years old, and the preacher. And, and you know, sometimes the attendance would go as high as maybe 40 or 50 if it was Christmas and people came back to visit their families. But, but it was a very positive experience for me. The, the, the worship was really made an impact on me. The singing wasn't always on key, um, but, but it was authentic and it was enthusiastic. And, and we sang great hymns of the faith that, that I still carry with me today. Things like, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and, and trust and obey and saying on the promises and so on and so forth. And, 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 I, and I have very deep emotional ties to those experiences. And I, I still sometimes get a little emotional when we sing some of those hymns because it takes me back to, to the times and those people who prayed for me, invested in me, and for the time when I went forward and, 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 and made a commitment to Jesus Christ as a young boy. Now, several years later, God spoke to me in a very powerful way, but in a much different setting, in a much different way. It was at a Christian camp in Colorado. 
And God spoke to me through, uh, through guitars and drums and choruses. And, and once again, I sensed God's spirit, sensed his presence, and, and I responded. And to this day, there are certain choruses that still take me back to that day and to that camp. And over the course of my walk with Christ, I've, I've known God's presence in worship in outdoor settings, by myself climbing the mountains. I've known God's presence in big churches and little churches, at conferences, or at home by myself doing devotions. I've known God's presence in worship in a variety of ways, through liturgy, through contemporary choruses, through silence, through communion, through testimonies, through spoken word, through hymns. And as I've said, I've known God's presence by myself, with a small group of people, or in a large crowd. And many of you, no doubt, could testify to similar experiences. Uh, So if one can worship the Lord in a variety of ways, in a variety of settings, with a variety of people, what can we say about worship from this passage in Isaiah chapter 6? Well, let's start with where worship begins. There's a French proverb that says, a good meal ought to begin with hunger. In other words, it's hard to enjoy a good meal when you're not hungry, but when you're starving, it tastes great. In fact, just about anything tastes great when you're starving. The same is true with worship. When we approach worship with a hunger for God, when we approach worship with starving for a spiritual connection with with the Lord of the universe, we we will leave worship feeling fulfilled and, and satisfied and having connected with God. On the other hand, if we enter into worship with little or no appetite for him, then more than likely we will leave dissatisfied, frustrated, unfed, and apathetic. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And and the hunger that Jesus is talking about here is a need for God, a, a deep inner longing for God in his presence. This is where worship Begins. It's with a hunger for God, a, a, a thirst for his presence. It's a precursor for an encounter with a living God. Now, just an aside, when people are, are truly hungry, they're generally not too picky about what they eat. What does this say to us about the worship wars we see going on in the North American church? And what does it say about the nature of the church's hunger for God? Another note, you create physical hunger by a lack of food, by withholding food. You don't eat enough and, and you get hungrier and you get hungrier. But spiritually, it can actually work the other way. A lack of time with God can actually dull your spiritual hunger and, 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 and thwart your spiritual sensitivity to him and his spirit. While regular time with God, through prayer, through Bible study, through personal and corporate worship, will increase your hunger. Increase your thirst for more of God. Anyhow, let's, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6, which was just read just a minute ago. And this is a classic worship text, Isaiah chapter 6, where, where Isaiah gets a glimpse of, of worship in heaven. And we see his response to this. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, from this passage, there are kind of four statements that we're going to pull out regarding worship. And the first is, Worship worship begins with seeing God for who he really is. True worship must start here because true worship is, is, is transformational. When we get a glimpse of God, we encounter God through worship. We, when we get a glimpse of who he is, 
It begins there with seeing who he is and his holiness and his majesty and his power. You know, it's always interesting to me to see how people respond to famous people when they run into, you know, they're eating in a restaurant and they see a famous person, maybe an athlete or an actor or a movie star, maybe an actor like George Clooney or a singer like Taylor Swift or a politician. Maybe, maybe you're out in, you, in D.C. and you saw President Obama. It would be, it would be kind of an exciting moment for us, wouldn't it? And, and if you had a chance to greet them and talk to them, that's a story you would carry along with you and, and until for the rest of your life because you encountered some, something, somebody bigger than life, in a sense. Well, in worship, when we're in the presence of unimaginable power and incredible goodness, when we see the Lord for who he is, when we focus on that, we are changed. True worship should stick with us. It should transform us, and it should, it should motivate us to tell the story again and again and again of the time that we spend with God and and the encounter and how it changes us. Look at verse 1. It says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, one of the dangers that we can have as human beings is that we can tend to, to when, we, when we deal with God, is we can tend to focus in on a couple of characteristics of God to the exclusion of the rest. For example, Scripture tells us that God, through Christ, can be approached with confidence. It tells us that God is our friend, that he's close, that he's personal, that he, that he cares for us, that he loves us. And this is true, and it should be emphasized greatly. But Scripture also tells us that God is holy, unbelievably perfect, that he is just, that he is all-powerful. He is not a God to be trifled with. And so we must not ignore or neglect that fact when dealing with God. In these verses, we see these seraphs. Seraphs are these heavenly creatures that have been created to to, uh, continually worship God in his throne room. And we see these seraphs, these heavenly creatures, and they're, they're, they're flying around, they're covering their faces because they cannot bear to look God in the face. And as they cover their faces, they they proclaim God's holiness, his his blazing glory, and and how his glory is revealed in all creation. Now, there are two primary words used in Scripture for worship. One of them literally means to to, to bow down in in adoration and in in submission. And if we truly see God for who he is, then reverence and awe and humility and a holy fear will be our our response. Uh, Author uh, Annie Dillard got it right, I think, when she says, if we had any idea of who we are dealing with when we come into worship, we'd put on our crash helmets and we'd lash ourselves to our chairs. So worship begins with seeing God for who he is. Second, worship then brings us to to see ourselves for who we really are. True worship causes us to see our desperate need for the Lord, and it humbles our heart. In verse 5, Isaiah has this response where he says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Paul said something similar uh, in Romans 3.23, where he says, For all have sinned, and, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, when we were on vacation several years ago when our kids were in preschool, we went to a place called Mueller State Park. 
Uh, it's um, west of Woodland Park, west of Colorado Springs, a, a great place to go with the family. I mean, you, you, there's hiking trails, there's bike paths, and there's a lot of these exhibits that are kind of educational set up for, for kids and their families. And, and one of them is, is basically this long, uh, long jump pit, this big sand pit, and along the side they have these markers that show you how far the animals in the park can jump from a standstill. And so you can kind of compare yourselves to the animals and see how far you would go. Um, you know, like there's a squirrel and there's a rabbit and there's a fox and a bear and a deer. And so, of course, I wanted to impress the kids with my great athleticism. So I, I jumped and I landed somewhere between a squirrel and a rabbit, uh, um, which I didn't feel too bad about. But, but, but there, with the deer, I never, ever could have gotten to where the deer jumped. Even with a, a running start, there was no way I would ever come close to matching how far that deer could jump. You know, intellectually, we, we all know that we fall short, don't we, of God's standard. We know that we're not perfect, we're not holy, and so on and so forth. But it must move beyond a mere intellectual assent to a humility, a real humility and a brokenness before God, a receptivity, a perspective that uh, who God is and who we are. And the very, the very best of us may jump quite a bit farther than most morally, but no matter how good we may be in comparison to others, we will always fail miserably when compared to God and his standard. So when we see ourselves for who we are in true worship, there is no room for pride, and there's no room for comparison to others, and there certainly is no room for self-justification. Isaiah had that response, where he says in the passage, I am ruined, woe to me, for I am a, a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's a natural response to to being in God's presence. And the closer I walk with God, the more quickly that I I feel my sin, and the more more I realize how much I need him. It's sort of like um, uh, when you get up in the morning, there's this huge mirror, and you get dressed, and you kind of look at yourself from a distance, and it looks pretty good. But the closer you look, the more you see the flaws, the the wrinkles, the bags under the eyes, the maybe little acne or something, or, or the, the hair you missed when you were shaving, the, the receding hairline, the little gut that's growing, whatever it is, you, the closer you get the more to that mirror, the more and more you see your faults. And, and the same is true with God. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how much we need him and how far we fall short of his holiness. That is essential to worship for God. But then it leads us to the great news. In worship, we, we get to experience and celebrate the mercy and grace of God. Verse 6. Then one of the stairs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So just when Isaiah gets a glimpse of God and gets a glimpse of himself and he thinks he's about to be ruined. He's about to be destroyed because he's in the presence of perfection. His eyes see this stare flying towards him with a hot coal. And, and this coal was taken from the altar of sacrifice, which, is, which symbolizes um, the spotless lamb of Christ and his sacrifice, which would take away the sin of the world. And so despite this huge gap between Isaiah's life and this holy and perfect God, Isaiah is about to experience Mercy. He's about to experience grace. In the, last, in the movie The Last Emperor, the young child who's anointed as the, as the emperor of, of China has a, 
has a thousand servants at his command. His brother asked, what happens when you do wrong? When I do wrong, somebody else is punished, the emperor replies. And the demonstrator, he picks up a jar, he throws it down, it breaks, and one of his servants is immediately beaten with a stick. Philip Yancey, the Christian author, relates this story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And then he writes, In Christianity, Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants erred, the the king was punished. Grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. And, And true worship involves a recognition and an experience of God's grace. It involves a response of gratitude and of of joy and and of sacrifice and of service for the Lord. And people who who really understand who God is and and understand who they are and and have received God's mercy through faith in Christ will not have trouble staying awake in worship. They won't struggle to be motivated to worship. They'll worship God on Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday through through their devotions, through their worship, wherever they are, they'll worship God through their lives. The fourth and last element we're going to look at is in Isaiah 6 is true worship draws us into ministry. It motivates us to serve God and serve others. Isaiah 6, 8. Then I, speaking of Isaiah, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And then God responds in verse 9, Go and tell the people. Worship should lead to response where, we, where we, we, we leave this place, we go into the world and we serve others. It should lead us to, 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 to get a, have a different perspective about God's priorities and God's values, to, to go into all the world and, and share the good news with people who need, desperately need good news. It should crystallize what's important to us. Worship should draw us into a greater understanding of who God is and his truth. It should lead us into a greater understanding of his call upon our lives and, and an experience with his spirit. So let's reveal, review real quick, and then I'll close. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, our worship should begin with, with getting, looking at God for who he is. And if we, if we understand God's grace, we should come to worship with humility, seeing ourselves for who we are in need of a Savior. If we understand who we are without Christ in worship, we should, we, should, we should celebrate and respond and receive God's grace and God's mercy. And finally, through worship, we should be motivated to, to minister, to go and to serve. As Isaiah said, hear my Lord, send me. There's a thought-provoking uh, quote about worship by Leland Riken, who's a professor at Wheaton College. He writes, earlier in this century, someone claimed that we work at our play and we play at our work. Today the confusion has deepened, he, conclu- he continues. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. In worship, God deserves our very best, our attention, our love, our passion, our humility. Worship is, is something that we are created to do, and we are to do it with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Let's begin with first base, worshiping God for who he is in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before you and we thank you for who you are. You are holy and just and perfect and righteous. You are loving and kind and good. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. 
And Lord, we know as well that we fall short of that standard. We can never achieve uh, who you are, your character. Uh, Lord, yet, Lord, we thank you that you have bridged that gap through your son, Jesus Christ, and that we can know your grace and your mercy when we put our trust in, in, in you. Lord, we pray that as a people, we would be people who truly worship you in spirit and truth, that our worship would be invigorated and alive and full and rich as we worship you through hymns and choruses, through prayer, through reflection, through communion, through the, through the word, through testimonies. Lord, that we would worship you, that you'd be pleased and honored, and that in the process, we would encounter you in a powerful way, and we'd be changed and sent into the world to be your ambassadors. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, and we worship you and give ourselves to you. Amen.